So many of us love coffee, like the living for it type of love. Some like it hot, some like it iced with a splash of creamer, and some like it with a cold foam topping. Many of us stop into coffee shops on our way to work more often than we'd like to admit. But now, thanks to International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, you can make cold foam coffee at home, or in my team's case, in the office, and it's a game changer. I was just chatting with a teammate of mine about our love for the occasional sweet treat coffee. Sometimes it's just the thing you need as a pick-me-up on a busy day. And we just stocked our office fridge with International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, and it never misses. The team's favorite flavor so far is the Caramel Macchiato. You just shake the canister and spray it into your coffee, and voila, you've got an incredible cold foam coffee, no frothing, fancy machines, or mess required. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer foams and creams your coffee from top to bottom. The best part? It works on both hot and iced coffee. It comes in three foaming, delicious flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato. So you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. This is episode number 1058 with former Navy SEAL officer Rich Devinney. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Margaret Thatcher once said, don't follow the crowd, let the crowd follow you. And John Quincy Adams said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more and become more, you are a leader. I'm so excited because my guest today is Rich Devinney, who has more than 20 years of experience as a Navy SEAL officer at the highest level. He completed more than 13 overseas deployments, achieved multiple leadership positions, and since retirement in early 2017, has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant, and is now the author of his new book, The Attributes. 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. And I love diving deep into the mindset of a Navy SEAL and all the techniques, lessons, and wisdom that comes from being a leader and a driver of success. And in this episode, we discuss how to train yourself to have more motivation and not be lazy, the difference between self-discipline and discipline, how to train your mind to be more calm during stress and chaos, the five main behaviors of a good leader. The difference between task switching and multitasking, and this part will be huge for so many of you, whether it's better to make a bad decision or no decision at all, how to build up your self-confidence, the steps we can take to overcome the fear of rejection. This was cool. We talk about the law of attraction and why it works for Navy SEALs and so much more. And before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that we just launched my Greatness Coaching Program. This is your high-performance system for 2021 and beyond. It includes coaching, accountability, community, and my new Greatness Playbook, where you'll reflect, plan, and create short-term and long-term visions for your life. But whether you join Greatness Coaching or not, creating a high-performance system will be the biggest thing you do to set yourself up for success 
in 2021. If you're already a successful entrepreneur, then make sure to go to lewishouse.com slash mycoach to check out and see if this is the right program for you. It won't be for everyone, but make sure to check it out at lewishouse.com slash mycoach if you're interested in taking your life and business to the next level. And also, at any time during this episode, if you're enjoying it, make sure to share this with a friend who you think would be inspired by this and wants to learn from more of this information. Just send them the link, lewishouse.com slash 1058, or copy and paste it wherever you're listening to it, and share it on social media, text it to a friend, and let people know about this message. And also, if you want to spread the message of greatness, click the subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts right now and leave us a rating and review, as that will help us impact and change more lives together. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only Rich Davini. I want to talk about, first off, the difference between peak performance and optimal performance, because your whole thing is about optimal performance, and that peak performance is not sustainable. Right. But in kind of leadership world or personal growth world, a lot of people say, let's get to peak performance. Yeah. So why more optimal performance we should be leaning on? What is it? And why do you feel like it's better than peak performance? Yeah, you know, peak performance is, is well, in a word, awesome. I mean, it's very seductive. You know, it's flow states. It's, it's you're at your best. Mm-hmm. You're doing, you know, things that you never thought you could do. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, it's a, it's a very honorable and great goal. Um, the reason why it doesn't interest me as much uh, stems from the, from the fact that uh, people generally think of and would come up to me and say, well, you Navy SEALs are the top peak performers, I mean, the, the ultimate peak performers. And, uh, and I said, actually, no, we're not. Peak is an apex, and, it's, and, it's, and an apex is from which you can only come down, right? And, mm. and peak has to be um, prepared for, scheduled, conditioned, right, planned for. The professional football player, for example, you know, spends his entire week preparing to peak for three hours on Sunday, right? Um, and that's exactly what that football player should do, except Navy SEALs uh, don't have that option, right? Uh, you know, and, and spec, op, spec ops people don't have that option. Military people don't have that option. I don't think anybody in life has that option, unless you're planning a specific event. For a you moment. Can, for a moment. You can peak, you can plan for a peak in a moment, but everyday life is really about optimal. Optimal is how can I do the very best in the moment with what I've got, all right? Sometimes that looks like peak. Sometimes it looks like flow states. Sometimes it's just like, hey, I'm just taking step by step. I have my head down and I'm trudging through and it sucks and it's muddy and it's dirty <laughs> and it's hard, right? Um, this is, you know, it, what, what kind of keyed me into it was, you know, in, in SEAL training, you do something called surf torture. So they take you out in the cold waters of Southern California and they march you into the surf zone. You lay down, the waves just crash over you for what seems it's like freezing. hours. It's, it's freezing. freezing. You get a lot of guys quitting during that evolution. Um, and they do it at night, you know, and... Um, and I remember, you know, that I remember being in the surf zone and there was nothing peak about my performance in the surf zone, right? I was just, I was doing the very best I could, which was not to quit, which was what the other guys around me were doing too. Um, and some did and some didn't, you know, but this happens. I mean, the, the person fighting cancer, there's nothing peak about going through chemotherapy. The person striving for that goal and nugging it out, there's nothing peak about it. It's not peak all the time. Even, you know, you, you're talking about training for a marathon or these long distance runners, you know, you're not going to be peak the whole, you know, 20, you're not 20, your yeah, you're not, you're not every, moment, yeah, yeah. every moment, right? There's going to be points at which you're, you're ebbing and flowing. And so optimal is about the ebb and flow. And that's life. And that's really understanding oneself and one's performance so that you achieve optimal versus peak. How do we train ourselves to find motivation and not be lazy? 
Because I feel like there's a lot of laziness out there or there's moments of motivation, but then it falls back into a laziness uh, structured schedule. How do we train our minds and our body to be motivated towards a goal and not stay lazy? Yeah. Uh, well, at first, it's know thyself because we all, we're all different. And so one of the attributes I talk about in the book is discipline. And what I had to do with discipline was um, actively separate discipline from self-discipline. What's the difference? Okay, well, the difference is that self-discipline is internally focused, okay? Self-discipline is about, is about managing oneself, and it, does, it has very little to do with external requirements, right? So, so you or I can decide to get in shape, for example, and we can change our diet, we can work out every day. The external environment uh, doesn't have a lot of say in that, you know, in, 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 us, in us achieving that accomplishment. So self-discipline is, is about managing the internal. Uh, discipline the way I, I talk about it in the book, is about achieving that long-term goal. This is the, these are those long-term goals that are going to take a, a while to achieve, and the, the external world has a say. So getting that promotion, writing that book, becoming the famous singer, becoming a Navy SEAL, right? The external world has, mm -hmm. starting a podcast, right? The external world has a say in whether or not you do that. And, that's, and the discipline that is required to move through those, wicked, those wickets takes adaptability, it takes flexibility, it takes the ability to not get seduced by the highs, the successes and not get crushed by the failures and, and continue to move towards that goal. And what I found was, because I'm a, I'm a very unself-disciplined person. I don't really? have a lot, right? Um, and so what I, so I, I had to separate this because I've, I've been able to achieve a lot of goals in my life. I said, well, what, what's the difference? Uh, well, the difference is um, if you are overly, so, so those with very high self-discipline, sometimes, this is not exclusive, but sometimes have trouble achieving long-term goals because because the achievement of long-term goals often takes uh, an ability and, a, and, a, and by necessity to march into the unknown, into uncertainty, which is going to throw you off routine and throw you out of certainty. The self-disciplined person, the very self-disciplined, likes routine, likes certainty, right? That's how, it's structure. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so moving towards a goal like that takes oftentimes uh, being able to adapt out of structure, you know, and say, well, I... I can't do that. Like I'm normal. I'd have to just go in. I have to go in unknowing, right? Now, the the best, the, the most successful people are the, those who have both self-discipline and discipline, right? Um, in terms of staying motivated for a goal, the way I would do it by knowing myself is I would, I would uh, understanding I'm not a very self-disciplined person. I would simply try to chunk a goal into smaller pieces, right? Mm -hmm. So. If I want to, if I want to lose weight, you know, then I, I can say, well, that's why cheat days are actually good for me, right? Yeah. Because I can, I can, I can say, okay, I'm gonna take this piece of it and, and move. So I, 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 I chunk my reward system in a different way. But I think, um, I think the way, the way one stays motivated towards a goal is highly subjective. But it, it would, in my, uh, kind of through my thought process and my experience, involve a, an active or one to actively. Um, map out a reward system that helps someone move sort of, through that. Sort of creating a reward system first for yeah. the for the goal in order to help you stay motivated. So depending, on, say, yeah, depending on your depending on your how you show up. Not right? just yeah. say like, okay, I'm gonna my goal is to achieve this thing, it's gonna take me three years to accomplish it. Right. And that's the only reward I'm gonna get in that's those right. three years. But how can I reward myself every day for an action I take, every month yeah. for a milestone, every year for yeah. getting closer? So focusing on the reward system for yeah. and that and this is this is this is neurobiological mm -hmm. because dopamine, the neurotransmitter, is you get you get hits of dopamine when you as a reward when you achieve things. Yeah. You know, there's many ways you get dopamine, but one of the ways is when you achieve things. So if you're able to effectively create a reward system that means something to you, mm -hmm. it can't be it can't be kind of inert, right? So so if I want to run, 
if I don't run a marathon and I haven't and I can barely run to the to my mailbox, right? <laughs> um, you know, then maybe you know buying some running shoes and putting them on one morning is enough of a reward system to get a dopamine hit. Yeah. As someone who runs, you know, somewhat frequently, and I you probably uh, identify with this, uh, just putting on our shoes one morning is probably not going to give us that dopamine hit. We got to we got to extend that mm. we got to extend that task a little bit so if that you've that, already accomplished a lot of something. So that, you yeah. have to push beyond. You have it to push bit. beyond it to get that that reward system. So it becomes subjective. What would you say? Twenty years as a Navy SEAL at different levels. Uh, and you were deployed how many different times? Are you allowed to talk about that? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, 13 and some change, yeah, so. Deployments between, what, six months and over a year? Yeah, I never did year long, but anywhere between you know, three months to six months, usually. Um, and this is Iraq and Afghanistan? For the most part, yeah. And other places maybe you're not allowed to talk about. Yeah. What would you say of that 20-year experience was the most challenging experience for you? Was it something within uh, a mission? Was it learning how to develop as a leader? Was it having a relationship with your wife during that time? What was the most challenging point yeah. for you? Yeah, the most challenging thing, ironically, wasn't the job because you because we were all so prepared for the job and mm. you were around, we were around just the best people in the world. Um, so, so the trust and the camaraderie was to this day. You know, I, I look back on it very fondly. Right. Wow. Um, so the, not the day to day job. No. You mean even yeah. just like the the. The missions you went out on. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't challenging. Uh, I think I think if I were to if I were to say, you know, the first foremost was probably having to leave the family. When you have to say goodbye to your family um, for a stint, you know, mm. whether it's three months or six months, or some some folks are deploying for a year, right? Um, that is a rough deal that not many people can can capture. Not many people with families can capture that when you have to say goodbye to your kids. And your wife for that, you know, you know, okay, well, see you in however. And then, and then to add on to that, understanding their stress, or at least my kids were a little bit smaller, but understanding my wife's stress, knowing that I was going someplace and she, she it was dangerous. Contact yeah, well, you. I mean, luckily with today's technology, contact was fairly easy. But we found was, you know, again, ironically, we found that that um, daily contact was never a good idea because what happens is you establish a routine. You get comfortable. You're... You get comfortable. So, so something happens. I'm, I'm working. I'm, out, I'm overseas and something. I'm, I'm, I have a mission that goes long or whatever, and I don't get to call her that day. Well, suddenly she's worried, you know. And it also makes time actually seem slower. Interesting. So, yeah. So we, we decided we were only going to talk usually once a week. My son, who had a real trouble, I and mean, he was young. I mean, he was, you know, he, he was born in um, 05. So he was, he was, by the time he was two, he was, he was having trouble with me deploying. Um, and... And every time I went, it was rough on him. And we actually, for him, we actually almost had to, well, we literally had to just decide not to, I was not, I was not going to talk to him on the phone. It was too hard for him. He had to basically kind of forget me. Oh, my gosh. Know, um, so he had to compartmentalize as a yeah. child yeah. in order we to. We had to help him compartmentalize. Survive. You know? Yeah. And not so, go depressed or yeah. be stressed. Because that's one of the attributes we talk about is compartmentalization. Yeah. How do you do that if you're an emotional human being that's, you have these deep connections to your family and friends. How do you just detach in a sense yeah. and become more machine-like <laughs> for a period of time yeah. and then allow yourself to feel deeply in other moments? Well, it never goes away. And I think the attributes, the, the, the way I talk about compartmentalization and the attribute is more, uh, in, is more kind of surrounded by the way our brain functions and processes information versus I'm going to block something out so I don't have to think about it. However, um, I think most team guys, SEALs, spec ops guys, have a, a very high ability to compartmentalize 
away from things, you know, block out things that are mm -hmm. that are painful. And I know that about me, um, and I know that about my my uh, my buddies, um, because you have to, because war sucks, you know. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, the mission has to be accomplished, you know. So if something gnarly happens on a mission, um, you can't sit there. These these movies that show these extended scenes of people, you know, mourning when, when their buddy goes down or whatever, like, you oh my God, yeah. it doesn't happen. No, you don't have that time. You know, you, you, have to, the, the, you have to win the gunfight, right? Because if you don't, then all of you won't make it home, right? right. So, so you have to, and I think, I think the training allows you to do that. The training is so intense and so um, kind of, uh, so effective that it requires you to compartmentalize. You know, training teaches you to compartmentalize. You become, you become very, very good at it. Um, now, that can be a detriment in a relationship. <laughs> so uh, I think those of us who were able to recognize that actively try not to do that with our families. Um, and so it becomes much more of a precision tool versus a, a frenetic thing yeah. that just happens without us, without us having control over it. What was the, the moment that was the scariest for you when you were deployed? Where you thought like, um, I may not make it. Um, or our team may not make it, or this is a really bad, I guess you're training for bad situations all the time, yeah, but was there ever a moment you were like, I don't know if we're gonna get out of this? No, I was, I was fortunate not to have that moment. I say, that, nice. I say that with immense gratitude, because I know there's a lot of friends of mine who didn't have that, that uh, can't say that, they had those moments where they, you know, they said that, but, but no, I, I was fortunate enough to be um, always in a position, um, and my team was always in a position that we had prepared, planned, and executed in a way that was highly effective so that when things went wrong, because things always go sideways, um, we had complete, you know, or near complete control, or we, we understood the pathways we needed to get to, to go throughout it. But, but I say that also, you know, this, is, this comes back to compartmentalization. You know, um, one of the things that you have to be able to do when, when shit goes sideways is to not focus on that thought you just brought up, right? The focus is not, oh my God, I don't think I'm going to get out of this. The focus is, how do I get out of this? But the, so the mental acuity attributes, which are situation awareness, um, uh, compartmentalization, task switching, and then learnability, right? Um, so that's how information is coming in, how we're processing it and prioritizing, how we're switching between the necessary tasks, and then how we're learning from our, from our, from, from our decisions, right? So I talk about the parachute malfunction in, in the context of that. Um, but ultimately, comes to, to even be able to do that in the first place, it requires a, a, a forebrain dominance in the sense that you're not letting your autonomic system take over into a mm. fight-flight response, and you're able to think through stress, challenge, and, and, and uncertainty in the, in the sense of say, okay, what, what can I control right now? And this is where trust in your teammates mm. comes in, because now I have a team. I mean, I, I can say this with, with, um, with great pride and gratitude. I, I can remember literally walking in areas, you know, when we were overseas and thinking, man, this is a, this is a bad area. Sketchy. Right? This is sketchy. And having complete and utter faith, right? Because I just, I was around, because I was with my teammates, right? I was around people who just, I trusted. I knew that if something went, went wrong, we'd, we'd be able to handle it, you know? And so I think that's, that's a necessity when you do this type of, type of stuff. When you're going out on a mission, What's the process like of preparing for that mission? Are you planning more for all the things that could go wrong and how to get out of that situation? Or is it planning for, here's exactly how we would like it to go right, <clears throat> Yeah. but let's also have a exit plan or a plan for yeah. when things go wrong. What do you, it's, do you it's the latter. It's, 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 you plan the mission as you'd like it to go. Um, and then you, uh, inside of that planning, you put together, you build contingencies within each 
uh, within each factor. So when this doesn't go as planned, right. so, what are the three ways to get yeah, out? Yeah, so so you know, just like I mean, just like any um, uh, athlete would understand. Or so so a quarterback coming out of a snap would say, well, I have two or three or four plays I can fall mm-hmm. back on, depending on how this line shapes up, right? Um, you have the same thing, you know. I, you know, this is where experience matters. You do you do it over and over again. It's okay. Well, during as we're coming in on insertion, you know, we, there's there's a few things that could go wrong. So if this, then that. If this, then that. And you kind of do that throughout a phase, throughout the phase planning. Um, but then there's what we call the 80-20 rule, and that is you you get to 80% of certainty, and then you recognize that 20% is just out of your control. And that's where confidence comes. You say, hey, if something happens outside that 20%, we will. We will figure it out figure on the fly it out. because we're not going to figure out everything, and and it's you know Murphy's law will dictate that something happens that we haven't thought of, uh, so you uh, so you prepare yourself to deal with uncertainty. How do you train your mind to deal with chaos in the moment so that you don't freak out and freeze up, but you actually turn on a level of focus and attention towards achieving that goal? Yeah, the uh, I, well, so I think we're predisposed. Uh, each one of us to what uh, what I've called like a human Huberman and I both have called this is the autonomic set point. You know, at what point do we start flipping into an autonomic into an autonomic response into fight flight, where our where our system starts you know taking over and our forebrain starts coming offline. If we were, if you and I use boiling point as the average, most of us might be average. My career not only requires me to travel, but also gives me the freedom to. Traveling has brought me so many positive experiences and memories. Like that time I spent the holidays at an Airbnb in Big Bear with some of my extended family, and it was the perfect way to come together and connect with my family that I don't see that often. If you have a similar setup that allows you to travel often, have you ever thought about your empty home while you're gone? More specifically, how you can make some extra money by keeping your home occupied while you're out of town. I'm a big advocate for setting up a side hustle to give you an extra stream of income and Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start. Many people host on Airbnb, including some friends of mine, but there are some people out there who've never even realized their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you've got yourself an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with features and benefits like flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business, 24-7 support from a business card specialist trained to help with your business needs, and so much more. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation. There are those who uh, who start really freaking out at like 190. You know, so 212 is the average. At 190 degrees, they're starting to freak out. Right. There are people who take it takes till like 230 to boil. To, to yeah, boil, yeah. right? I think that the guys who make it through that training are predisposed to have a higher set point. First of all, uh, in other words, we tend to when bad things start to happen, we tend to slow down. 
and start thinking through it um, versus get all hyped up. It's funny. It's funny. You know, uh, I live in a neighborhood, and, and in my neighborhood, there's four other Navy SEALs in really? the neighborhood. There's you know one across the street, one down the road. One. Must be nice. Well, it is nice. You know, <laughs> a because they're great dudes and it's great. They're great neighbors. But I remember my wife once saying, you know, she said, "Hey, I'm so glad these guys are here." And I in the neighborhood, I was like, "Why?" So she said, "Because if something went wrong, I know I could go to them and they'd act like you act." Oh. And I said, "Well, tell me." I said, "Because because if something happens, they would immediately calm down and they'd start working the problem, right?" And so so I think there's. There, I think we show up predisposed. Mm. Um, training to it is is difficult, you know. Um, and I I think so. So here we're actually working on some stuff, some stuff to help train, have to help teach people to, to do that. Uh, but it comes down to understanding your own neurology, and it comes down to understanding that you know um, here's how you have to think through situations under stress, and then it's going to be about putting yourself into deliberate stress to practice that. You can't practice this. Type of thinking if you're not in stress, you right? Need so you you need that. to put yourself in that. What are some things yeah. civilians could do to practice stressful moments on a daily basis where it doesn't hurt them, but yeah. it's actually preparing them? I talk about every day. I think you should be experiencing some type of pain, something that's uncomfortable, right? Seeking discomfort, yes. Uh, whether it be through a 10-minute workout, whether it be through a longer run, it doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. An uncomfortable conversation. Yes. We should be doing this every day in a in a, a structured environment. Yeah. That allows us to grow. Yes. What do you think are some ways we could do this that's not putting us in harm's way or physically hurting ourselves? Yeah. I, I can't answer that because it's so subjective. Mm -hmm. I can give some ideas and you just gave some. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> some people are, are very social people. So starting a conversation with a stranger is Easy. a piece of cake, right? Yeah. For me, that would be hard, right? Starting a conversation with a stranger would be hard. So that might be something I do. Uh, giving a presentation. Public speaking for people is tough. So, uh, so volunteering to give that presentation is a great way for a lot of people because, you know, you know, they... That, that, that makes them anxious, you know? So working out for some is like, for some people they've developed a system where that, that pain point of working out is something they highly enjoy, right? right. So, so they're not, so they're not, not practicing that. it, you know? So, yeah. um, so, it, so someone should, should look at their own makeup and ask themselves what, what fright, well, in fear, again, it doesn't have to go all the way to fear. Fear is interesting. Because it's a, it's actually a combination of two things. It's a combination of uncertainty and anxiety. <clears throat> you can have each one of those and not have fear, right? So if you are anxious but not uncertain, that would be I have to give this presentation on Monday. I hope it's good. I'm nervous about it, right? That's you know, but but there's nothing uncertain about it. It's Monday. It's at two o'clock. I know what I'm going to do. I'm just I'm nervous about it. Right. Okay. Um, uncertainty without anxiety. Well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so uh, but it's when you combine the two that you start to generate fear. Well. Um, the the idea is if you have fear, if you have uncertainty plus anxiety and it starts to, to, to manifest in fear, the key is to understanding which of those two factors can you buy down, okay? Anxiety... Buy, buy down? Buy down, which means uh, decrease. Um, anxiety can be decreased internally. It's an internal response, right? So things like uh, some of the tools Huberman talks about, visual tools, breathing tools, you can begin to you can begin to shift your physiology out of your sympathetic into your parasympathetic, mm -hmm. come off of the autonomic response uh, system, right? So that's so that's how you can start, you know, kind of buying down un, uh, uh, anxiety. Uncertainty is largely external. Okay, mm. that means something around you, outside of you, you don't understand. There's unknown. Um, the way, the best way to do that, and the way we do it uh, in the in Spec Ops is we we control what we can control. So some some people have referred to it kind of control your three foot world, right? But it doesn't have to extend. It's not a it's not a three foot thing. It's it's what in this moment can I control, and then take control of that, mm. right? Because then you are grabbing onto certainty. You're taking what is uncertain. You're grabbing onto something certain. As soon as you've controlled that, as soon as you move through that, then you have to make another 
decision. What's what's the next thing? This is basically kind of stepping through, right? Stepping through this challenge, right? So, uh, so you can start to you can start to practice um, coming off of fear or moving through fear by kind of understanding both of those those uh, those pieces. What do you think is the greatest lesson you learned throughout the twenty years for yourself that has helped you, not only during that but also after being uh, with the seals? I think it's I think it's it's not fearing the unknown. It's the it's the idea mm. that I, I you know when you go through something like that you understand that hey I could pretty much do whatever I'd like to do, um, and I know that even though even though I don't know how I'm going to do it, I know I can figure it out if there's enough interest, if there's enough, enough passion, right? You know I'm not gonna I'm not interested in becoming a pro football player, you know. Right. So so that's you know that's off my list, right? But I was interested in writing a book, and that was a whole new process for me. You know, when I started, when I left the Navy, I started public speaking. I did not like public speaking yeah. at all, right? <laughs> I did not like it. But I knew it was a, it was a, it was an edge that I wanted to conquer, you know, and say, okay, well, let me work through the things to to conquer this edge. Kind of like your philosophy. I think it's a really, it's it's not only a deep one, but it's profound mm. because because if we are consistently moving, deciding what our edges are, moving towards our edge, and then getting there. Um, then we are we are growing, you know, because guess what we're doing at that point? We're looking for the next edge, you know, and that's the growth process is continuing to move to our edges and and then finding the next edge. I mean, you say you don't like public speaking, but don't you have to speak to your teams and guys? Yeah, but that's not public. Time. That's like, really? you know, that's that's the guys. So it's, it's not it's, it's not different. the same. It's different. Yeah, it's different. There's a lot more, you know, when you're, you know, because you're and, and and when you're in the in the military, there's no there's no expectation of of you know kind of great articulation or or humor or you know just or what's, what's effective yeah it's just what's like, effective hey, get here's it done. the word <laughs> here's what we do, right? and that's what's appreciated too there's like no one wants you to sit there and pontificate it's like hey guys this is this is what's going on um so there's there's a there's a directness that's appreciated and and um and required you know so but that's not you know public speaking. what do you think was the hardest lesson you had to learn through your 20 years something that you were struggling with or challenged with or you kept repeating until you finally Learn the lesson. Yeah, I think the hardest lessons, the hardest lesson, maybe not one, the hardest lessons were just around leadership. What it takes, what leadership take, what, what it takes to be a leader. Because again, um, hmm. being a leader and being in charge are often conflated. They're not the same thing, okay? What's the difference? Well, anybody could be in charge. I, as an officer, you know, in the, in the military, I was pretty much in charge of something all the time. It didn't, didn't make me a leader. You, you don't get to call yourself a leader. It's like calling yourself funny or calling yourself handsome. Okay, <laughs> someone else someone else makes that decision. You uh -huh. can't you can't you can't designate yourself that way. Um, someone else decides whether or not you are a leader. Okay, and that's done through the way you behave in that position. So if you are in charge and you're behaving in a way that causes someone to make a decision, okay, this is the person I would lead. I mean, if 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 we think about the leaders in our lives, the people who we consider leaders in our lives, it's not because they were just in charge of us. In fact, we could probably think of people who we would follow. Uh, into hell and back, and they they have they have no place in the hierarchy of, li of our lives, right? They are just someone who just they behaved that way in a, in, in a way that's made us kind of in, in in endeared to them. So so the attributes I talk about in the book in terms of leadership attributes are all attributes that actually um, cause behaviors that typically cause people to look at others as leaders. What are the behaviors that? most human beings admire the most that we want to follow that person or be inspired <laughs> to be led by something that they're sharing or involved in, a community, a movement, whatever it may be, what are the three or four main behaviors that they have and we should be developing <laughs> if we want to be better leaders? Yeah, well, I talk about five in the book in terms of the efforts. The first five. is empathy, okay? And again, I, I would say this, there's not an exclusivity in terms of what someone will decide 
uh, because there are people who will look subjective, at subjective. It. Right? It's a subjective thing. You know, again, it's it's someone's choice as to whether or not they think so. Empathy is one. Um, selflessness uh, is another, and, and this is not just um, you know. So let's just back up here. Empathy, um, not just I know how you feel. I feel how you feel. Right. I can I can put myself into your shoes, and and I re- and that reflects in the way I, I communicate with you, and I and I care about. It shows that you care about another human being. Um, what, is, what is the best way to to show that? I mean, give me an example. As opposed to saying I know how you feel, how do you feel empathize, showing you feel how they feel? Well, first, deep listening. And so, so, uh, so we all, so listening to another person, but, uh, but true, like deep, full on, like listening, like I, I am hanging on every word listening. Oftentimes we listen to people and we're two things, one, or, one of two things is happening. Either we're thinking about what we're going to say next, right? Or we're thinking about how, what that person is saying relates to our lives. And it's not from a malicious standpoint. It's, it's really because we're trying to relate. So we're trying to say, okay, you're, you're talking about football. I'm thinking, okay, wait a second, you know, did I play? I played football in eighth grade. Maybe I can talk about that. Relate, yeah. yeah. But what I'm doing is I'm not listening to you anymore. You know, I'm making uh. what you're saying about me, you know? So, um, so what's, what deep empathetic listening is, I'm, I've, I have like a whiteboard in my mind. Okay. And as I'm listening to you speak, if something pops onto the whiteboard, I erase it <laughs> and I move on. I just keep on listening. You know, that is, if you do, if you, if you empathetically listen, like look into someone's eyes, attentive behavior, facing each other, you are going, they are going to feel cared for because you're exchanging. Now there's an exchange going on. There's serotonin being released. Uh, there's, uh, mm. there's oxytocin being exchanged or at least released. Um, and all these uh, kind of these bonding chemicals, right? So, so that type of listening shows someone you care about them. Empathy is a little bit tougher for some. Some people are just wired. We know some people are wired to be, my wife is extraordinarily empathetic. I mean, she really feels other people. I mean, I am not. She's, I've had to to really try to develop empathy. It's something that she's taught me in terms, she hasn't taught me, she hasn't taught me how to do it because you can't teach someone attributes, but she's inspired me to kind of develop it myself. Um, And that is, hey, I'm asking myself questions like, okay, given your background, you know, can I really put myself, can I kind of take out all of my predisp- pre- predispositions and biases and really put myself in your, in your shoes? Um, sometimes the answer, admittedly, is no. You can't do it fully, right? And that's, we can, admit, we can probably admit that, right? But to even make an attempt, I think, is, is a showing of caring. What's the, what's the attempt, then? Is it you're, you're explaining something to your wife about, uh, I'm out in the field, this happened, this guy got injured. I was terrified. I thought, whatever. Yeah. And a wife or your partner or friend who's not in that experience is going to say, well, I can't feel how you feel, but yeah. how would they try to feel how you feel if you're sharing something like that? That's unrelatable. Because they're not going to yeah. say, well, you know, with me and my girlfriends, right. I went through something that was hard, but you're going to be like, well, you're trying to be relatable, but it's missing the mark, Gosh, right? You so, know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I have some ideas. I, you know, per, a person who be the per, person I think the best person to ask would be like a, 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 a Oscar-winning actress or actor, um, because those people, the, the best actors, are not faking it. They are actually empathizing. They, they go are, into that. They place. go into that place and they feel it. And I, so I would be very curious. In fact, you know, next time you have an actor, I'll, I'll listen there to the podcast. Go. We'll ask that question because because how do they do that? How do they get into the person's shoes? Um, you know, I, for me, it's about asking some 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 questions and saying, okay, what are my, what biases am I, what biases might I be coming in to mm. with that, uh, that are not allowing me to feel this? Um, and can Oof. I, can I maybe imagine myself mm-hmm. with conditions and circumstances such that this person might have, might have been or, or is experiencing? Um, 
Is it better to share back what you're hearing someone saying to show that you're listening? Is it better to say nothing to show empathy? Is it yeah. better to say, well, here's my thoughts and solutions? Yeah, yeah. What's the best way to respond yeah, to show empathy. Yeah, it was certainly not to offer solutions because that means <laughs> that means you've been you've been thinking about solutions while you've been listening, right. <laughs> which means you haven't been listening. Um, there's a there's kind of a, a way you can you can respond that tells them that you've you've heard them, but you still and you still want to hear more. So so I under, I you know it sounds to me like what you're saying is this, you know, um, and then and just let it out there. But the key is when you're empathetically listening is to talk way less, you know, um, and, and really a lot of our acknowledgements can come non-verbally. I mean, we do most of our communicating non-verbally. If I'm, if mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm listening to you, I'm nodding and I'm, my eyebrows are moving and I'm really emoting as you're speaking, you know, I'm listening to you, right. you know, I'm hearing you without if, me saying it. But if you're looking out around, right. you're not connecting to yeah. me or, or worse yet, you know, looking at my iPhone when oh, it pings, man. right? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the worst. You know, yeah. So, okay. Uh, so that's number one. Yeah. The, of the five behaviors great leaders yeah. have is empathy. Would you say that's the most important, or are these all equally important? I, I would I would hesitate to put uh, a level of importance, but I would say that one of the most important is, and it's, I'm not saying this in order, but would be authenticity. Authenticity builds trust. Also, you know, when you are authentic, um, when you are yourself, um, and you are that way all the time, you know, with that, with whomever you're with, that shows others that this person is real. And is being real, and this person is the same person uh, at work as he or she is at home, as he or she is with the enlisted people in the military, or the officers, or the CEO, or the you know, or the line worker, right? Um, I always say it doesn't have, to, it doesn't mean you have to be nice. You know, I had a, I remember, you know, when you uh, when you take over command, there's a change of command ceremony in the military, and I remember uh, I was attending one of these command, uh, change of command ceremonies for a CO that was coming into the command I was at. So he was going to be my new, he was really the command's new commanding officer, but my CO. And we were at the ceremony. I went to introduce myself to him. And, um, <laughs> and within about 30 seconds, I mean, he introduced a really kind of firm, kind of rough handshake with a very serious, and he, within about 15 or 30 seconds, he's asking me like really tough questions about some gear that had been sitting on the shelf, right? And I was giving him some rote answers that some guys had told me that I didn't really know. And he was grilling me. I mean, it was like, well, why, you know, having, why haven't you done this? What do you, have you tried it? Have you done it yourself? Why would you believe? It was like rough. And I was like, man, this is not fun. And I remember walking away from that conversation and saying, yeah, this is going to be a rough two years. <laughs> this, guy, this guy's grumpy, you know, and he's, he seems mean. Um, but what I realized over the next couple of weeks is that he was like that with everybody. You know, it didn't matter if he was an officer, enlisted, didn't matter if he was at the chow hall, didn't matter if he was out in the, you know, PTing, you know, physical training. Wherever he was, he was always asking the tough questions. He was always kind of grumpy. He was always doing that stuff. He was actually a phenomenal leader. He was mm. like that with all of it. I could trust his, I could trust his grumpiness. I could trust his tough questions. <laughs> yeah. I knew exactly what to expect every time I went to this guy. And he was actually a phenomenal leader. He really was. Because I could, I could trust him. I knew he was being authentic, and he was just the same way. And that's important. So I think authenticity is 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 uh, another one of the five. Yeah, selflessness. You said selflessness. Uh, so selflessness is is different than just generosity or altruism. Selflessness involves a risk or cost to that to the person who's being selfless, right? So so are you are you doing something that is at risk or costing you in some way? Um, that's selflessness. That shows someone that you are extending yourself for that person. What that would that could, look like? Well, that could be as easy as giving someone some rope, you know, so, to go take a take a risk, and knowing that they and and them knowing you have their back, you know. 
Um, it could be, you know, spending time. Time, you know, a good friend of mine used, you know, likes to say time is the currency of leadership. We all have the same amount, you know. When you give your time, you're giving something that we all have the same amount. There's no one who has more, right, or, or less. So when you give your time to another human being, you're being selfless with your time. So that's another way you can do it. it, it, it it's, um, it's showing that you are, I mean, even... Showing they matter. Someone yeah, showing matters. they matter. Even as a teammate, you know, if if uh, if your if your project uh, teammate needs to win points with the boss, you give them credit. You know, a project you work together, you give them more credit. Mm. You know, that's that's selfless, right? I mean, you can. There's different ways you can do it. No, yeah. but uh, but just doing something that is for another human being and that is risking and, and, that or it, costing it, you something. Yeah, involves some sort of cost. You know, um, yeah, or risk. Yeah. Okay. What's the fourth one? Decisiveness. Uh, which is different than making good decisions. Uh, making decisions is obviously a very good uh, thing to be able to do, but it's a skill. You can learn how to make good decisions just by analysis, you know, understanding how to analyze data and predictions and, and, um, and probabilities and, and outcomes and things like that. Is it better to make a bad decision than no decision at all? <laughs> Depends. You know what I mean? Is <laughs> it better to be a decisive person? Well, because the, sometimes, sometimes people conflate making no decision with doing nothing. But sometimes the decision is to do nothing. You know, mm. um, Sometimes the best decision... I give an example in the book of what's called uh, um, recon by fire. It's sort of an old tactic where um, you know, it, you, the enemy used to use this in Vietnam. They'd, they'd fire... You know, a, a, they'd think that a patrol was out there and they'd fire into that area in order to elicit a response, because that patrol would think they're being fired on immediately fire back. Well, as soon as they do that, the enemy knows exactly where they are, right? Right. Recon by fire. We, as spec ops guys, you, you learn this because you learn, hey, sometimes you're a small unit, right? You don't want to get into a firefight. For so, so just because you hear shots doesn't necessarily mean you pull the trigger. Sometimes the decision is just is to do nothing. To be right? still. To be still. And you wait. Know, as, as they in, keep firing every... Yeah, I mean, if the bullets start hitting the tree next to you, you may want to yeah. do something, right? But you know, but, the, but just if it's a half a mile away, right? You, it's to assess, right? So, mm. so I think I think it really depends on on the decision. Decisiveness is really about both the speed and the effectiveness of decision. How how quickly are you able to make a decision, and with what uh, effectiveness? And that that involves uh, the ability to gather a reasonable amount of information about the situation such that you're hitting a percentage it could be the 80 20 like hey, I'm getting enough that I'm gonna that we're gonna do something I want to do yeah. um, and then and then and then moving forward because we all know that those leaders who um, take long protracted amounts of time to make decisions are like oh, okay that it doesn't abuse, it doesn't abuse a lot of a lot of trust and faith mm. but the leader who's who's responsibly decisive are those who say okay yeah that's that's great now the other thing that, that the decisive leader understands is that um, re, uh, decisions while they are final, they are not permanent, okay? So uh, so you make a decision, say we're gonna move out, this is final, we're moving out, we're doing this thing. But as we as we kind of start to uh, recognize the effects or the or the um, outcomes of that of that movement, we are free to adapt and change if we found that that decision was so not being correct. flexible. Flexible and adaptable. Um, hmm. So that's decisiveness. And then the last one is uh, it, it has to be, decisiveness has to be buttressed by accountability. Accountability is also huge because um, because if you are not able to be accountable for your decisions, then that is not going to view trust. No one's, you, gonna, no one's gonna trust you if you say, ah, it wasn't my fault. I mean, yeah, I mean, leaders just don't do that. I mean, how many leaders do we know in our lives who we really, if we can honestly ask ourselves and say to ourselves, okay, what's it, if I can think of the greatest, if I can think of the one, you know, one of the people in my life who's the greatest leader and ask myself, are they accountable for their actions? The answer is unequivocally, 
Yes, it's not mm-hmm. about blame. It's not about well, it's not about excuses. It's about owning it. Um, ownership and, is key. Yeah, ownership is key, and I think that's those are those are the qualities. So I think those five attributes are attributes that lead to um, people uh, deciding that you're a leader. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success from before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You don't have to have all of them. Perfection is not the, mm-hmm. not the outcome here. Um, and admittedly, sometimes, even though I consider myself an accountable person, there are cases where I can, you know, again, you say I was guilty of not being as accountable as I should have, right? So we all slip a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, but I think those are, the, those are the key ones. Do you think people are, there are some people that are, are more born into being lead, natural leaders or is it something that all of us can be trained and learn how to do this? Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit both. I mean, I think the attributes, you know, I talk about the attributes in terms of uh, they are inherent to our nature, right? So we are we're all born with these attributes, um, and and it's really the levels to which we have each, and we can develop them over time if we are if we choose to do so. Um, some people are are very empathetic, but not very decisive. Some people are highly accountable, but maybe not um, uh, you know selfless. Who knows? Um, so I think I think there's there's a, there are people who are probably born and are predisposed with maybe more of these attributes than others, and others who are born and they just develop them along the way. Mm-hmm. There are leadership skills that one can learn. You know, listening is a leadership skill. Uh, decision making is a leadership skill. Uh, um, uh, delegating is a leadership skill. So these are skills that you can learn. So I think leadership is a mixture of attributes and skills. Uh, so I think the answer is both. You can be you know, we, you can you can be born with some advantages on the leadership front, um, but uh, again, leadership is about someone deciding that. You know, it's not about you. Someone saying, else deciding. Yeah, it's not about you saying I'm a born leader, right? You know, it's it's, it's <laughs> not that. It's like, or do you behave in a way? You know, that people. Mm-hmm. I mean, or do you do you turn around and are people following you? You know, if the answer is yes, then you're probably a leader, right? If the answer is no, then you're not. And there's nothing wrong with that. I and mean, there's some you know full professions that aren't. They're kind of self-directed, right? You know, the the the, the comedian doesn't necessarily be a, need to be a great leader, right? I mean, that's a self-directed, right. you know, profession. So, so it's not necessary. But I think we just have to understand that leadership is something that other people decide, not us. You know, huh. so so if we want to be leaders, we need to behave like that, and then see what happens. Yeah, and you can't rush being a leader probably you can't force it you can't rush no, no. it <laughs> no that's dictatorship <laughs> that's dictatorship right that's being in charge aggressively right you can't say yeah. oh i'm doing all these attributes I'm, I'm developing these skills like people should want to follow me now right no it's not you know i mean that's like saying you're handsome <laughs> so girls should be attracted to me now girls should be falling over when they look at me right come on what's going on i'm combing my hair i'm brushing my teeth you know <laughs> you know i'm working out doesn't work that way what's the uh skill that you have yet to develop that you wish you could develop it's it's windsurfing but with no kite surfing that's, kite surfing, that's a skill i would like that's to do. a skill what about um, attribute that uh attribute i'm still i'm i'm I, i'm always actively working on my empathy you mm. know that's something i'm actively working on um i'm actively learning on my uh, working on my learnability if i were to if i were to rate all of the mental acuity attributes i'm pretty high on situation awareness task switching and compartmentalization learnability is still tough for me it takes me a while to learn things you know um, so I've, I, I've always tried to develop that one. Uh, uh, humility. I think humility is one that you have to constantly keep in check. And then narcissism is one that we all have to manage. I talk about narcissism as a drive attribute. And it's not, 
it's not something you want to work on as much as manage. <laughs> right. So. Is narcissism something that it can be good? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I talk about narcissism as a drive attribute because, uh, because narcissism is so every every human being wants to f- wants to feel special in some way wants to stand out wants to be paid attention to wants to wants to be what's the attention wants some attention right this is this is biological when we're, when we're infants being looked at and adored by our parents we are getting hits of serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin as that's happening so it feels good um and so we it's 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 natural for us to want to feel that way um when i talk about what people you know talk about hey why'd you why'd you become a navy seal and i always joke so i'll go it, you know, I'm a patriot, but it wasn't because I was a patriot. You know, most SEALs will sell you, tell you, I just want to be a badass. I wanted to be a badass. I wanted to see if I could do it. I wanted mm. to see if I could do something very few people could do. I wanted to be a badass. There's nothing wrong with that if it's a driver. I want to be the best of the best. Why does someone want to be a a, 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 a singer, you know, a, right. a, a famous singer? It's because a they professional want to, athlete. Yeah, or professional, any, any one of those things. So so I think narcissism, um, when managed appropriately, is a, is a tremendously powerful driver. Um, and we have to recognize that. And the only the, because again we have to understand our own engines and and in the act of recognizing that we also understand we need to manage it. The way you manage it is through your close, trusted personal relationships, friends and friends yeah. and, and people who really love and trust you and will give you the hard truth, bringing you back to earth, grounding. Like I call them our grounding wires, right? Who yeah. are our grounding wires? You know, my wife is my grounding wire. She always has been, and and thank God for her. And she she uses me <laughs> as her grounding wire, right? Um, because. She'll always tell me the truth. She'll always tell me, you know, if I'm leaning too far out over my skis, you know. Um, and then, and then you collect other people. My, 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 uh, my teammates, my brothers, you know, you know, just just this group of people. If you are, if you've surrounded yourself with a circle of sycophants, um, you're probably guilty. Here's the problem with narcissism: it's like a vampire looking in the mirror. You can't see it in yourself. It's very, very. It's almost. It's impossible, <laughs> right? Um, it, it really easy to see in another in another person. You see right, right away, like man, that's a narcissist. Right and you see it. You see it in their groups, the groups they form as well, because the groups they form are are largely sycophantic. They are temporary, right? So the loyalties are temporary because because it's just tough to always be you know bending the knee to someone else, right? So mm-hmm. so you see people transiting and, and come and go, and those people who usually go are usually demonized when they do because the because the the yeah. the narcissist does not like that, um, and so the group is an indication tough to see in ourselves we have to lean on our lean on our relationships ask for feedback hey am i being too narcissistic and and ask yourself i mean if you're in a group um who is typically the one being paid attention to the most and if you if you're able to answer that honestly you know you you might get a clue okay it's funny my my wife and son they listened to a podcast i did uh, a wife several months ago and they had never heard me on a on a podcast and and my son's 15 and I come home because I recorded in my office because it's quiet, <laughs> and um, I come home. They're like, they're like, who who is this guy? I mean, you <laughs> sound like a narcissist. Yeah. yeah, who is this guy? Because we don't hear you talk like this at home. Because at home, I don't talk a lot. You know, if I do, they like, joke. If you're, you're at home, you're talking about you know what you're going to eat next, or yeah. you know, you know Time something for bed stupid or whatever. Yeah, yeah. whatever. You know, um, but um, but I recognize when I'm with my family. My family, we all live in the same area, so we all get together every weekend. And I don't talk much. I just listen, and it's nice for me, you know. And and but I recognize. That's healthy because I'm not. I don't need to, nor do I want to, be the center of attention. Mm. You know, um, and uh, and I have to keep that in check, right? So you know, it's interesting. Sometimes I've always discovered this because I was always scared to talk publicly growing up. Uh, and after college, I was afraid of public speaking, so I took public speaking class every week for a year. And I always felt like I was just insecure around my words when mm-hmm. I was even in small groups. Yeah. So I'd always, I was always just kind of sit there and listen. 
As I got older, I started to really listen by asking intentional questions and just always ask questions. Yeah. And by the end of the night, I'd be like, everyone would be swarmed around me because I'd just be asking everyone questions. They'd be like, man, you're the most interesting person here. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. have to kind of like make sure you're in check also that yeah. way because the quiet one is usually sometimes, can be sometimes someone that always wants to learn from too. That's hey, right. they're not saying enough. You're not saying, yeah. So hey, that's, what do they that's, know that I don't know? It could know. be a secret, right? It could be yeah. a little, a little yeah, bit yeah. of stealth going on. Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. But I, and I think you have a natural curiosity, which is a very healthy uh, way to express. What you're doing is, I think, a healthy way to express because what you're doing, the reason why people are surrounding themselves or surrounding uh, surrounding you is because they love people love hearing about themselves right when you mm. ask someone questions you know they they love to answer I mean we all love to talk tell about me about your too. success yes oh, oh my god tell me why you're so amazing I'd be happy to right <laughs> I mean so so when someone you know, this is one of my wife's you know normal just qualities she just she loves asking deliberate yeah. questions she's very curious about human beings well guess what people just flock because of, yeah, because they because she's just she, there's a magnet there's a magnetism just like you know there was a magnetism with you when yeah. you do that you know so so curiosity and and it's a, and it's a it's a genuine curiosity it's not yes. a, it's not a uh, it's not one with malicious intent strategic it's a strategic curiosity. yeah that's right um, so it's it's so important. there is some power in being narcissistic for periods of time for moments yeah. but you want to be checking yourself. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah, it's a driver, I would say. It's a driver say. to it's, help it's, you achieve something? Sure, yeah, because, because again, how are you going to set and achieve audacious goals unless, you, unless there's a little bit of, of narcissism in there to think that, you know, I can, you know? And what would you say is the difference between, you mentioned this, task switching versus multitasking? Yes, well, multitasking neurologically is a myth um, <laughs> because what happens is our... Our forebrain, our conscious mind, can't really focus on anything, any anything more than one thing. So they, you, know, you know, again, guys like Huberman would say that hey, the brain does. There's a little, there's a little facet of being able to to be to pay attention to something else, maybe one other thing. But focus is really one one thing. Now, people are like, what are we talking about? I could do something and I can listen to music, or I can do something and I can I drive can a car. walk and drive. And it, talk. Do, it doesn't count when it's when the when the when the activity is being conducted unconsciously. So that when we're driving a car, a lot of that that a lot of that um, activity that that skill is being conducted unconsciously. Isn't that crazy, right? yeah. But just think about it. If you're listening to a podcast, if I'm listening to you in my car, because I listen to podcasts while I'm driving usually. If I'm listening to you in my car and I'm driving on the highway, I'm really engaged in what you and the guests are talking about until someone cuts me off and I have to slam on the brakes, right? And then I just, I recover and I realize I just missed the last 30 seconds of what you both just said on the podcast because my brain switched, you know? So, so task switching is the, is the hopping between contexts of your brain. So we have, and we do this, we do this all the time, we do it automatically. So you can switch, you can switch contexts, in, you can switch tasks inside of a context, right? So, so driving, for example, the context of driving inside of that, we're switching all the time. One moment we're, we're focused on the steering wheel, then the accelerator, then the brake, and now here the, the blinker is hopefully not our phone, right? But we're doing that constantly. As soon as we park that car and we walk out into the parking lot, we've switched contexts, right? Now we're in parking lot context, mm -hmm. okay? And we're now we're paying attention to other things, you know, cars that might hit us. And then we walk into the supermarket and we switch context again. Um, so task switching is the is the hopping between, and we just have to recognize that that's a um, that's an energy expenditure every time our brain does it. Okay, it's very natural. Every time it switches. Every time it switches. Costs energy. Yes. Now, those who are um, who find task switching more difficult are those. And this this could be advantageous, right? Because th there are those people who um, they they get into something with deep focus and they find it very difficult to pull out. Right. Mm. So this is the person who who start who's working on a project and everything else in their in their world could be burning down, and they're not even. <laughs> 
they don't even notice. They're, yeah. they're deeply focused. The other side of that is what well, could probably be like ADHD, where you're you're constantly switching. You're never able to focus enough. You're like bam, 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 right? The the balance there is: are you able to um, focus in on something, maintain an awareness of other things that are going on, such that when priorities shift, you can switch. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and that can be practiced. And I practice this, you know, when I'm in the city, you know, uh, at least pre. Pre-pandemic, um, you know, riding the subways in New York, I love that because it's a, it's, a, it's an enormous mental acuity drill for me. Yeah. Um, so can you do that? The the thing that we are guilty of, most of us, is that we task switch unnecessarily throughout the day, and that's check because the phone. Of our, this check the phone. And it's, it's largely because of our phone, right? Because yeah. our phone is a, it, you know what that is? It's a collection of contexts, right? It's that game. It's that it's the Instagram. It's the email. It's the texting. It's like a different world in every app. And every, every app thing. is a context, right? And, and so what does that do to our brains when we're constantly it, switching context? It, it uses a tremendous amount of energy, you know. And and what it does is it shifts focus, right? So um, so if I'm focused on a conversation with you and my and my text goes off, and I choose to address it. Right, I've I've completely shifted context. It's mm-hmm. neurologically, it's like going from a library to a soccer stadium. Right, I mean, you're just you're shifting context. I, I'm attending to that, and then now I'm trying to shift back. Okay, so hard. And they've they've done studies on that. A lot of times, it takes 15 to 20 minutes to fully reengage. Um, and the, the the other thing about this is even um, we could decide, like you and I said, let's keep our phones upside down. Okay. Even if it bings or, or vibrates, right? Just the idea of, just the hearing, idea it of seeing hearing it, it is, is, is shifting a switch in our brain, right? Because wow. it's, because we're, because it's, even if we don't act on even it, even if we don't act on it's it, it's still a, a stimulus that we have to think about. Because we our, recognize it. Oh, we say, I wonder if I need to get that. And, oh, and, I wonder. Yeah, and it's a decision, right? It's like, okay, okay, it's vibrating, but I'm not going to get it. I, I, just, I just hopped contexts, right? So, so we do this quite often, and it's, it takes a lot of energy, you know, and, um, and I think, you know, we can, we can practice some of these mental acuity attributes by putting away those phones, noticing our what's in our world. That's situational awareness. Starting to work with, okay, what do I want to focus on? You know, what do I want, how do I prioritize all this information? What do I want to focus on? And then, as I'm focused on it, can I switch effectively in in that? And then, and then learning from my from my lessons as I go. How do you develop uh, confidence within yourself personally? And what have you seen that's worked within Navy SEALs? on when they might doubt themselves in moments of uncertainty mm-hmm. or fear or stress, and there's a moment of doubt, how do we build up self-belief, self-confidence, self-worth, so that when challenges arise, we don't doubt ourselves? Yeah, uh, so the, uh, the, the processes and tools that, so Huberman and I are working on are meant to help articulate this better, but I'm gonna give you kind of a, 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 an overview. And that is um, confidence for me is the ability to handle uncertainty. And so I so I consider myself very confident because I've I've come from a lifestyle where we are quite literally masters of uncertainty. We've trained <laughs> ourselves to deal with uncertainty very effectively. And I think if I, if we can walk around the world and say, hey, regardless of what happens, I know I'm at least equipped to be able to handle it to a degree. Okay, I won't I won't fall it. apart. I can manage it. You know, it might be ugly, it might be painful, but I can manage it, right? Mm. That's confidence, you know. Um, the way we the way we can practice that is to practice taking control of what we can control. It's actually it's it's well, it's taking control of the two things, the internal, the anxiety. Can we manage our our physiology through our breathing, through our vision, you know, some of those tools. Um, and then can we manage the external uncertainty through controlling what we can control? Um, this this idea of controlling what we can control is huge because what it does is it it allows you to take action and take control of some sort and control and action builds confidence right right and it could be very small it could be like um, 
Uh, well, let me let me give you an example. In, internal control and external control. Internal control and external control. I mean, uh, so an example from SEAL training would be, you know, you, you're running on the beach for hours and hours with these boats on your head, and you're doing, I mean, especially Hell Week, you're just, <laughs> miserable. I mean, miserable. Okay, and I remember, I remember <laughs> being in, running with, you know, one, it was, I can't remember what night of Hell Week it was, but it was the middle of the night sometime, you know, and I had the boat on our head, we, we had the boat on, boats on our head, and we were running, and I was like, oh, I can't, it's just, it seemed like it had been going on forever, you know, and I said to myself, how long is this going to last? And so immediately I said, you know what, I'm just going to focus on the end of that berm, because you're running on the beach and there's, you know, berms. I'm going to focus on the end of the berm, right? And so what did I do immediately, without thinking about it? I immediately took control of what I could control, right? I said, end of berm. And that's where I moved to, you know. And then as soon as that that happens, I actually that was a reward. That's a dopamine reward that I just that I just gave myself, and I did it again, you know. So, um, so so let's mm. let's let's take it all to a, to a uh, situation we can all relate to: COVID and 2020. Okay. When's this going to end? We right. Don't I know. mean, think about think about when we first all got locked down. You know, I mean, none of us in the in those first few moments had skills that we could lean upon right this is where attributes start to come for the fore did you right? have the skills no because because we'd never been in the situation right the 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 and i would say you know there, there's some caveats there because I, I might have developed skills in terms of how to deal with uncertainty right mm-hmm. but it's really I, I developed the ability to lean on my attributes and say okay what do we know let's solve the problem yeah here's yeah. what we don't know i can't worry about what i don't know what i what i can't control what do i know and what can i move towards okay i know i have enough toilet paper i know the the family's healthy i know we're okay um we, we have internet so the kids can go to school right now um we can get outside and walk around yeah that's pretty food. much it yeah <laughs> right now let's see what tomorrow brings we got a backyard <laughs> yeah, we can, right yeah. so yeah so it's um so we all actually practiced this in 2020 we all practiced to some degree um what about this do I understand and what can I control? And at first there was very little. Uh, and for those who got too steeped in the news, they found it much more difficult because the news was um, really all they were doing was reporting uncertainty. I mean, you turn on the news and it was all about Fear, what we don't know. It uncertainty, was, yeah, yeah, chaos. That's right. And so, and so my wife and I actually took a news diet. You know, we said, we're not watching this. That's you know, we're just smart. Gonna, yeah, I never watched the news. Yeah, it helped because that's I mean, imagine, what happens. imagine, I think I was talking with Huberman last time. Imagine watching a train crash actually hit into a car of people every 10 minutes mm-hmm. in real life. Yeah. It'd be traumatic. Yeah. And it's almost like we're doing that by watching TV of showing the worst moments of something over and over on right. repeat. Right. And I believe our brains are really being affected by that. Yeah. And, and, Watching more of it is not going to help us. It's not, and so and we can't. In in some cases, we can certainly blame the news organizations, right? But they are simply um, putting forth a model that works. Okay, they're, and they're getting are, more attention. They're making more money. We are we are neurologically and evolutionarily designed to pay attention to threats. That's what we do. Okay, because we are designed to say, okay, what's what might harm me. Okay, um, and so that's why if we walk by the, by the newsstand and we see two newspapers next to each other, and one says. Um, genius eight-year-old wins world spelling bee which is kind of a cool story and next to it says uh dangerous weather storm approaching you know we're going to focus on the weather storm okay because we're designed to do that this is biological when we're in the caveman days we had to pay attention to threats um this so this is why you know news bad news sells right so so the 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 threats the fear is like okay what you know how can i protect myself you know the problem is when there are actually no answers you know and all it is is just threats, you know, which is really when the 24-hour news cycle, they don't, there aren't solutions coming that fast, you know, and so, so we, it's, it's now incumbent on us to 
to take a diet, you know. And hopefully, if we if enough of us diet from the news like that, maybe the news will change. Exactly. <laughs> you know? So. So it's the practicing taking control of our internal, which would be our breathing or our thoughts or um, what's inside of us, and then also controlling the external, turning off the news, going for a walk. Yeah. What are what other external things can we be doing to build? Uh, I guess, certainty in uncertainty. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Just uh, just t uh, asking yourself the question because it's going to be subjective. What can I control in this moment? You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, and 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 move towards that. It might be at that moment taking a walk. It might be, um, you know, uh, turning off the news. It might be reading a book. It might be having some family time. Um, whatever that might be. In the, in a worst case, in a in a crisis scenario, this is exactly what kind of triaging is. You know, what's in a triage situation where you're dealing with a bunch of you know injuries, right? You're saying, hey, what do I need to focus on first? What do you mean a triage situation? So, so in a triage situation, when you have when you have a mass casualty situation, so a lot of injuries, right? What what happens is that, during a mission, well, or first responders, right? In, gotcha, a, in, a, gotcha. in an accident, right? Gotcha. They will they will look at the they will look at the casualty. Let's say it's four or five people, and they will immediately start to prioritize who the who the most threatening injuries are, and they will deal with them first, right? And so it's like, okay, person, I cut my leg, but yeah. this person's got This person has a cut, and, yeah. but it, it's gonna be fine, right? This person's arm is off, and if we don't do something, they will bleed out. Um, this person's neck is, you know, is Severing, hurting. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's bad, but as long as we don't move them right now, um, we're gonna be okay. So let's do this first, right? And then we'll move to the neck, and then we'll move to, so, so this is called triaging. And so we just need to, um, mm. you know, mentally triage our situation a little bit better. Prioritize, triage is a little bit more of a graphic word, so I'd rather say prioritize. But say, um, you know, what can I control? You know, what is what in this moment can I control? And it might be, um, it might not be a lot, right? It might, you know, again, you know, you talk about the, you know, I, I mentioned the, the person working through cancer, right? That per anybody who you talk to who's gotten to cancer treatment and chemotherapy will say, you know what? During those days of chemotherapy, I was going minute by minute, man. Wow. That was all I was doing. I was just, I was like, go through the minute by minute and then just get through the day and then get through tomorrow, right? That person was controlling what they could do. They were just chunking their environment in order to step through. Right? Mm. And sometimes that's all it takes, you know. Uh, but that person took control, you know, those people who survived. What would you say are the next steps to building belief and confidence in yourself after you've taken control of the internal, the external? What would you say is next? I would say set goals and accomplish them. Mm. <laughs> There's nothing that builds more confidence, I think, than setting a goal and making it happen um, and that can be anything you know and it can be as it can be well it, it can be as small or as large as you want it has to be meaningful to you um, so if if it is you know running around the block that's great or if it is running the marathon that's great or it could be doing the hundred you know the, the triathlon whatever if we're in the physical sense mm -hmm. it could be writing the book it could be getting the promotion it could be uh, it could be changing jobs um, whatever it is uh, pick some goals uh, set your intent and move towards it. Yeah, I've always, uh, I think that's super smart as an athlete, I've always had goals mm -hmm. and for every season of life and every season of sports. And as I stopped playing sports uh, when I was 24 and was trying to figure out the rest of my life after the dreams were over of sports days, I realized I didn't have the same confidence. I had like a, 
Mm -hmm. confidence from like what I'd done and I was like okay I've achieved goals and I was a confident athlete but now I'm trying something completely new yeah, yeah. and this is unknown and it's kind of scary and I remember just thinking to myself I'm living in a lot of fear and I need to go all in on these fears until they disappear yeah. otherwise I'll constantly be kind of masking confidence or living off of a constant confidence of the past and yeah. trying to apply it to something unknown yeah. Yeah. it's going to be very inauthentic and so that's when I was like, okay, I created a list of my biggest fears and I started doing them one at a time until I was at least comfortable with the fear, yeah. until I mastered the fear, right. until I was like, okay, I can do this at any time yeah. without being prepared because I've already gone through it. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that was something that was really powerful. And every year I'm always thinking, how can I gain more confidence and humility by you gain humility by doing hard things because you suck at them, right? right? It's like, yeah. I'm doing Spanish right now, Spanish lessons, and it is challenging. Yeah. I yeah. hate not being great at something within the first day, right? It's <laughs> like, right. I want to be the Don't best. We all. <laughs> I want it to yeah. be like, be able to master it and pick it up. But it's humbling me, like, in one area, while other areas are growing and thriving. Yeah. So it's allowing me to keep that balance, keep that balance of... Yeah. I don't know. So that's something. You, you bring up a really great point, which I think has to be uh, hyper-emphasized, and that is the 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 ability and the deliberacy of jumping out of the the contexts that you're comfortable in. Right. So you built up confidence inside the sporting context. Yes. Okay? As soon as the sporting contest was or context was out of there, yep. you realize, oh wait a second, I'm not as confident as I thought. So to practice confidence, you have to deliberately, continuously throw yourself into unknown on certain environments, right? It can't, you can't, in other words, you can practice a little bit in the physical realm, but stand by, because you, you're, you're only gonna gain con confidence in the physical realm, right? So you need to say, okay, what's my next thing? What do I fear? Maybe it's- Yeah, so it's like if I'm a CrossFit expert and I try Spartan Race, it's very similar. It's very similar. You know, you, you start to build up, and this is what I call stress inoculation. You can, you can actually stress inoculate because you are building up the, the tools and the means with which you know how to move through that specific challenge, right? So I did this with my... What's stress inoculation? So you, so stress inoculation is the ability to uh, to inoculate yourself against the fear and stress of a, of, of a context. What's right? inoculation so mean? It basically, you're basically, um, you're basically uh, building up an immunity to it. You're, yeah, you're, you're... Being immune to the stress. Right. It's not, it's not happening anymore, right? You're, it's going away, right? So mm -hmm. it's, I'll give you an example because I don't like heights. I never did, you know, so, so <laughs> skydiving was always a challenge for me. Um, when I uh, when did you have I, to do a lot of skydiving? Yeah, a lot of it. A yeah. lot of it. So yeah. Oh, man. So but like those trips, sometimes you do trips and you do like in a week you do like fifty or sixty jumps, right? No and, way. And by and by like day by like Tuesday or Wednesday, we've had like ten or twelve or fifteen jumps on our belt, and I feel like okay, I'm I'm good. I mean, I'm not I'm not really scared anymore, you know. But I would do this, you know. There's an obstacle course at every seal base, you know, and, and you have a series of obstacles. One of the most popular ones, because it's almost on every obstacle course, is is a cargo net. So it's about a sixty-five foot net. Really simple. You climb up one side, you throw your leg over at the top, and you climb down. Okay, um, but it's really high. I mean, and, and if, if you don't like heights, that that leg hop over is actually. Are you wearing a rope? No, or? no. It's all it's 65 all. Sixty-five feet up. Yeah. So if you fell over, you're, you're in sand. You're, oh yeah, you're done. Yeah, or you're definitely injured, right? So really, wow. Yeah, so uh, so what I do though is is every time I go for a run, I plan my run to go past that past that cargo net, and I climb up it. And I when I got to the top, I'd sit on the top of it. And I just breathe in the fear. Wow. I just feel it. Okay. And then I go and then I go down the other side. And and every time I did that, I felt great because what's happening is that you're getting a dopamine hit by stepping into that fear, right? And this is neurologically backed, right? So you're getting a reward. But what what you know, 
I do that every day. And after you know a week or two of doing that, I'd get to the top of that net, and I no longer felt afraid. You know, I was used to it, right? So I no longer felt afraid, and I no longer was getting that dopamine hit. So it didn't feel as good anymore. Okay, but I was not to go twice as high the next time. Well, yeah, I didn't have a net twice as high. But (laughs) this is, but it's it's an example of inoculating yourself Mm. in in a context, right? So, so so something that makes you have fear. You do it over and over again until the fear goes away or until it minimizes a lot. Yes. Maybe you have like a little bit of queasiness for a second, but you feel comfortable. But then you're not afraid anymore to do it. Yeah. So you're not getting rewarded anymore. Is that right. what I'm hearing? Well, so yeah. So a good friend of mine once said, because uh, he, he, he knew I, I was into the stress inoculation stuff. He's like, hey, you know, I, I, have this, I have this fear of flying at night. I just, it was one, I was on an airplane one time. And there, there was an emergency. Nothing happened. But I, now I just, it's just hard for me to fly at night. I mean, how can I? Get over my fear of flying. Fly at night, at like, night every time. Start flying more at night. He's like, oh, I, I knew you said that. <laughs> it's true though. I it's mean, the it only way to overcome your fear is to go all in on it. Can you, you think to, your yeah, way? to inoculate yourself? Yes. Yeah. So you can't think your way out of something that's scary or can't. Well, you, you have to be experiencing. You can you can you can think your way out of it when you're experiencing it. You know, yes. but you can't you can't. I mean, I guess you can't like be afraid I, of heights I mean, they can and do, think like, and say, I'm not afraid of heights anymore. No, although it's an interesting, it'd be an interesting experiment to give to the neuroscientists. Yes. I mean, because visualization is a powerful tool, right? So if you, if you, and virtual reality. So if you, if you're able to um, simulate mm, enough of that threat, right, um, then perhaps you could do it without actually um, getting up high. Interesting. Uh, but I don't know. Those are those are not questions for you. And that's that's challenging, though. Yeah, so so what I'm hearing you say is that when you're afraid of something, you need to create an environment of stress inoculation in order to overcome that fear or yeah. to be able to embrace that fear without it crippling you. Yeah, and get better at it. Yeah. This is what I do with public speaking. You know, yeah. as soon as I got out and I started public speaking, I was nervous every time and I didn't like it. And I just and started keep doing, doing it. it. And I was doing it everywhere. I was doing it for free. I was doing it everywhere, every, what I did. as much as I could, you know, just to practice too. doing it and stepping into that fear. So you were afraid of heights, you conquered the 65 foot net and then it started to not be scary anymore. Mm-hmm. So what do you do next? Do well, you... it depends on which, uh, what direction you want to go. You know? And again, that, the 65-foot the, the net is only in that context, right? The 120-foot roller coaster is still scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, scary. going up there. Ah. You know? And even skydiving. If you do, you know, I, haven't sky, I haven't jumped out of an airplane in several years now, so I know if I do it again, which I plan to because my sons want to try it and my wife wants to do it, um, I'll be nervous again. Really? Know? So I'll have to step through it again. Yeah, because cause again, it's not, you know, if... You know, it's just, some of us are just, you know, we just naturally don't like certain things, right? Oh. You know, put me underwater in pitch black with, with, with sea life teeming around me, and I could fall asleep. Really? Oh, my God. I'm, what? I'm, I'm as comfortable. I mean, I... I are you I, always that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, the water is, I mean, I love it. Wow. Yeah. So, in the dark? In the dark. In the night. I, that I, would with, terrify I me. Without, without even seeing, if I can't even see my hand in front of my face, I'm still okay. So, you would go in the ocean right now in Santa Monica at midnight. Yeah. And... Swim around and feel comfortable. Willingly. Without, without, it, without a mask or without air, oxygen or without a... Yeah. Really? Yeah. And just swim around. Yeah. And you'd be like, I just trust there's no shark or eels or well, fish. Yeah, just for me, it's, you know, for me, it's comfortable. Wow. Whereas, you know, heights that's, or not. That's crazy. <laughs> but again, so it's subjective, right? I mean, so, right. so, you know, some people, like a bunch of my friends, they love, I mean, every aspect of skydiving they love, you know, and, you know, and some guys don't even like diving. Some of them are like, I just dive because I have to do it, right? Um, so it's really, I mean, I think the, um, one, of, one of the things I always loved about the community that I was in was that it was a bunch of guys who um, regularly tested themselves and they never let their, their fear 
detract from what they from the job they needed to do and what they needed to do to support their teammates right if I, if someone was afraid of jumping or didn't like jumping um, i'm still going to jump because everybody else is jumping that's part of the job right. i'm not going to cry about it i'm just going to work it. through it if i don't like diving i'm going to do it right that's just the way it is um, and that that practice allows and allowed us to go into some of the worst areas in the world in combat and not and not feel trepidation it's probably also nice to like doing a fear on your own is probably way scarier than if you have a team of people that are doing it with you, wouldn't you say? Or so, so yeah. So you get into so I, in the book I talk about some attributes that I call the others, uh, uh-huh. and I re, I call them the others because on most of the attributes, um, to have a, to have more of each one is is probably better. It's probably more effective in optimal forms, other than say narcissism, right? The others are ones that I, I, as I thought about, that the logic wasn't lining up the same way. So one, uh, so so two of them were patience and impatience. And what I realized was, optimal performance and high performers, like super performers, some are very patient and some are impatient. It didn't matter, right? So just because you're impatient doesn't mean you're not going to be a great performer. I happen to be patient. My wife happens to be impatient, right? It doesn't it 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 doesn't dictate whether or not you succeed as much as say not being adaptable, right? So. So I, I labeled that in the category. The other one was um, competitiveness and non-competitiveness, right? Um, there are some, some hyper-successful people who are very, very competitive. In fact, in fact a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the genre of like, performance and things like that um, really uh, tout competitiveness as an attribute. Um, but I've never been competitive. I can't stand it. You know, I, mm. I, I played lacrosse in high school. I liked, I liked lacrosse because I like the game. I like the stick work. I, I never really, if we won or lost, I was like, mm, okay. It never Just really having fun. Yeah. Just having fun, right? Um, and what I realized <laughs> was that, first of all, happily, the Navy SEALs, uh, they, 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 they neither um, touted or rejected that competitiveness. competitiveness right? It wasn't they, like, they, they, do this to win. Yeah, it was always, they, they actually honored both sides, the both polarities. And you can tell because there's two awards you get, there's two awards that are given at the end of a SEAL training class. So one is the honor man, okay? The honor man is given to the person who has the highest scores in all of the, like the swims, the runs, the obstacle course times, so all those. The competitive high, person. The competitive person, right? The other award's called the honor man, okay? But one's called? No, the honor man and the other one's called the fire in the gut. Okay, fire in the gut is the award that's given to the person who's shown the most grit, and and uh, and kind of gumshoe. I want to use a, a, a 1950s fire in the gut. Fire in the gut award, and usually that person has the lowest scores, right? And, and it, you know it, that can't be won; it has to be earned, and it, it's voted upon. Like the class votes on that. Wow. You know, so who has more respect? Well, it doesn't matter because the honor man has a lot of respect too. Because that, that that guy really put out, right? So both yeah. so both awards hold the same level of respect, which shows that both the competitive gene and the non-competitive gene are both highly That's highly. That's pretty respected. interesting. But this is but if you think about it, the dichotomy is actually quite beautiful because if you are in a team, some game some some most environments need both types of mindsets. The competitive mind looks at a looks at a situation and immediately begins to apply rules and boundaries and says, okay, how can I win? This, how can I win inside of what I see, right? That is very, very powerful, right? The non-competitive mind, like myself, I said, um, what's going on over here? How can we go maybe do something different, okay? What's a way we can go around, okay? So some missions required going straight up the line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you needed the competitive mindset to do that. Some missions didn't require that. If we went straight up the line, it would be disastrous. Some, some missions required, no, no, we need to think about it differently, right? We need to think about what, what's the pack doing and what can we do that's not in the pack, you know? So... So, so those are the two polarities. Long, long answer to the question you asked. The last one I talk about is the uh, fear of rejection versus mm. kind of insouciance to, yes. to what people think. The fear of rejection is a powerful attribute as long as it's not too much, right? Because, he, because it can be lead into peer pressure and all that stuff. But, but 
oftentimes those of us with a little bit more of a fear of rejection will do things that we otherwise wouldn't do because the group is doing it. You know, I jumped out of airplanes because my buddies were jumping out of airplanes. There was no way that I was not going to jump out of the airplane, right? There was no way because I was I needed to be with them, right? Um, so the fear of rejection can be effectively um, used and be very powerful if balanced. You know, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to do, to be pressured to do things that are unsafe, but it can be it can be very effective because it'll cause that person who's who's generally not a traveler to go with their friends and travel, try new things, explore explore different avenues, right? Because they don't want to be left out. Okay, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. Meanwhile, you have the, the, the person who it doesn't care what anybody thinks, has no, I mean, no bearing whatsoever. I don't give a flying, you know what, what people think, right? That person is important too because that's where most of the iconoclasts come from. You know, they're like, hmm, I don't care. You know, I'm just going to do this. You do know? what I want to do. And, do. and in fact, those people are pretty magnetic. You can see those because they're just off doing their own thing. And other people are like, hey, what's that person doing, right? Yeah. You know, um, and so, so both polarities can actually be powerful. It's interesting. When I've been talking to a lot of people, uh, a lot of people are afraid of failing. A lot of people don't do something because they're afraid of failing. And I see a lot of people say that they're actually afraid of success mm. and what the pressure that comes with success, right. losing friends and family because you're higher than or whatever, and them trying to pull you back down into yeah. their circle of comfort. So the fear of failure, the fear of success, but then also the third thing is kind of the fear of being judged by other people. Um, by taking action, what's the difference between judgment and fear of rejection? Um, fear of rejection is uh, is internally processed. It's my it's it's what I think you are thinking about me. Uh, judgment is what I'm thinking about you, right? And so so all of so everything, even judgment. Um, so we don't know if someone's. I mean, unless says someone says explicitly, "I am judging you," yeah, <laughs> right? or someone's right critiquing now, I'm judging you, you uh, critiquing you. Then it's a judgment in right? a way. Well, and it might be a healthy critique, by the yeah. way. But um, but it's all about how you process that. Um, and so uh, so fear of rejection is really about more the internal the internal processing and what I am what I am feeling that how I how I am feeling about what they're feeling, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, whereas uh, whereas judgment is what I. Th- either what they're saying or what I think they're yeah. saying. Um, and I think, I don't know. There's Why a, do you think a lot of people are afraid of being judged by others for Well, because probably because they don't want to be rejected. Because that's why, so, they're, so, they're, so they're, um, they're connected in that way because if someone feels like they're being judged negatively, they feel like they're being uh, actively excluded from the group. They're not accepted. They're not accepted. And that's yeah. scary if we're not... And have close ties we're or circles. Tribal, we're we're yeah. tribal species, right? So. so how do we use the fear of rejection or the fear of being judged in our favor when we say, I'm going to go after this career, I'm going to launch this book, I'm going to yeah. go be a pro athlete. Well, I, I would and say then people say, well, you're not going to do it or... Yeah, I think I think it's real simple. If we, the, the fear of rejection is used effectively if it's proactively moving towards our goals. You know, it's being used ineffectively if it's detracting from our goals. If right? we feel stuck if, and if say, I'm not, not going to do this because I'm I don't not want to doing this because I'm scared of what people will think, then that's being then that's my fear of rejection being used negatively. I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm allowing that to be used negatively. Um, if I'm saying, you know what, I am going to go on that roller coaster um, with my friends, even though it scares the crap out of me because I want to try something new and they're going to go. That's that's proactive. You know, so so it's really about our own movement. You know, mm-hmm. if we if if that feeling in ourselves is causing us to recede. 
in in for for silly reasons, right? You know, um, not safety reasons. How do um, yeah? How do we overcome? Well. How do we overcome that fear? Then you think of rejection and judgment. How do we self-impose movement forward as opposed to pulling back on our yeah. dreams? The way I do it is I I try to remember that everything that I think they're thinking is what I think only. Mm. I have no clue. I mean, we don't have any clue what people are thinking. We really don't. So why try? <laughs> and know? the one you said who doesn't care what anyone thinks. The, automatic. People are like yeah. drawn to them automatic. and they're... Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, now there, are, there are certain social norms, right, that we have to, if we want to interact effectively with our environment, we want to make sure we care what people think. You know, mm-hmm. we want to shower and we want to, you know... Uh, you know, be kind, be and kind, and not be you know an ass. You know, um, yeah. but uh, uh, but other than that, you know, we don't know what people are thinking, nor really should we care, unless it's going to socially impede us in a way that detracts. Why do you think so many people obsess over the few critical comments they get versus the abundance of positive comments when they put something online or a post or a book or a piece of art? Why do you think it's in our nature to obsess over the criticism as opposed to obsess over the praise? Well, probably because we, we focus on our weaknesses because we think it's going to exclude us. You know, we think our weaknesses might exclude us. But I think there's a, again, the inoculation against this one is, is kind of a neurological mm. one. And it's, it's what I talk about um, in, in some, some of the facets of what I speak. I actually mentioned in the book, too, and this idea of asking better questions. We are, as human beings, wired to make sense of our environment by asking questions. You know, that's what we do. We do it unconsciously all the time. Our brain is asking questions about what's going on. Oftentimes bouncing that off of previous things we have stored in our hippocampus and saying, okay, I recognize that that's a cup, that's a camera, that's a wall. That's hot, that's cold. That's, that's right. Yeah. Um, but we can do this consciously. So whenever we, whenever we consciously lodge a question into our forebrain, our brain immediately begins to come up with answers. So I do this experiment with, with people in, in classes I teach, and I say, okay, just take a moment. I'll give you 30 seconds to answer this question. How could I double my income in the next 30 days? All right, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Anything that pops into your head, write down on a piece of paper, right? So I start writing it down, okay? Give them 30 seconds, okay? They, they generate a little list. And I say, okay, I don't care what the answers are. And I don't care how ridiculous the answers are. How many answers did you come up with? And usually I get answers like, I don't know, five, four, three, sometimes eight, seven or eight. The reason why that happens is because they lodged a question to their forebrain, okay? Whatever question we lodge into our forebrain, our brains will begin to answer. Um, now, oftentimes we do this the wrong way. We say, why am I so bad at this? Why does this stuff always happen to me? You know, yeah. why are these people out to get me? Our brains begin to answer that question. You know? mm. And some of those answers are as ridiculous as the answers that someone mm. writes down in, in doubling their income. Okay, um, But our brains will answer them. But if we shift that question, uh, that, that, that context, and we ask ourselves better questions, and we flip it, and we say, what are some of the things I'm great at? You know, What are some of the things I can learn? What, what are the mistakes I can learn from, and how I can get better later? Um, how can I more effectively be part of this group of people or yeah. help this or how can I help this person our brains will answer that one too you know so so this is a I think there's a really powerful concept I, I learned this when I was in high school and I began to use it and it's drastically changed the quality of my life and I would submit to you just through experience this I would say that the the quality of our lives are directly proportional to the quality of questions we ask ourselves on a consistent mm-hmm. basis you know if we are if we ask ourselves consistently negative questions our quality of life is probably going to suffer. You know, in fact, I would guarantee it is. You know, versus if we ask ourselves 
better questions. And so, and we do this all the time. What, uh, are, the, what are the better questions we should be asking? Well, I mean, again, this becomes so subjective. I mean, so the first question is, what's the better question? <laughs> you know, and then funny, because my wife and I, you know, during this pandemic, we, um, we, you know, we have a German Shepherd, so we just take walks around the neighborhood with the dog. Because it was a way for us to release and just be together, and the dog got exercise. We were at this point, and as most people were at many points, and the kids were having trouble in school. We were just in a, we were just upset. We were all upset, and we were kind of lamenting this. And we did we do two laps around our neighborhood. That's usually standard. And we had done one lap, and we had the first lap had been largely uh, lamenting on this, the negativity. And at one point, we're both like, you know what? Let's stop here. What's the better question right now? And we literally began to start thinking about what the better question is. And it took us a while, but we came up with a better question. And that question led us down a pathway of getting out of, you know, the funk we were in and actually moving forward. So, so I think without being able to tell you what that exact question is, the first question you should ask is, what's the better question here um, when you find yourself in that situation? Yeah, that's important. We were talking about this beforehand a little bit about the law of attraction. And you mentioned you have an interesting story about the law of attraction yeah. and that you believe in the law of attraction for yourself and that it's worked for your life. What is your relationship with the law of attraction? So when I was in high school, my mom gave me a book called The Key to Yourself. It's by, huh. It was by Venice Bloodworth. Um, and I still have a couple copies of this book. It was written in the 50s. And, um, and this book was all about the law of attraction. You know, she basically was talking about it. And she was, it was, uh, it had a, there was a religious tone to it. So there was, it was, there was a religious slant to it as well but um but ultimately it was you know about this idea that if you if you intend and if you set your your mind frame and if you think positively and all this stuff you will start heading down you know you reap what you sow basically and i began to i began to get fascinated with this stuff i mean i really began to go i wouldn't say obsessed because that's a strong word but i I started reading books on psychology you know positive thinking psychology things like that um all everything i could get my hands on and began to really try to implement this. And I tried to do visualization and start to mm-hmm. really think. And it started working, you know. And, and like one of the first things that, that kind of I was able to, quote, manifest was, you know, my brother and I always wanted a Jeep, uh, in, you know, as a car when we were in high school. And so we just began to visualize a Jeep. And, you know, senior year, we got a Jeep, an 84, 1984 Jeep CJ7. Um, and I still have that car today. It's parked at the airport right now. Wow. I still have that car because it's the very first thing. And it just, every time I had a goal, I would basically set my intent and move towards it. Now, um, I, I'm not here to uh, either prove or promote the efficacy <laughs> of metaphysics, right? But I do think, so, I'm, so you are as interested in the neuroscience behind this as mm-hmm. I am. And I don't know if we've figured that out yet. Um, I know it works. One of the things that, I, one of the, one of the um, aspects that I think one of the reasons why I think it works is because of this idea of just attention in general, right? We have, and I talk about this in the Situation Awareness chapter, we have about 11 million bits of information coming into our systems at every second, right, from mm-hmm. all of our five senses. Um, and the thing is, we do a massive amount of deselection. There's things happening to us that we don't know, like, like you know, the bottom of your shoes, mm-hmm. right? You just started noticing that because I told you about it, right? But that's uh, this is happening constantly. So we we are we are in inputting a, a 11 million bits. Our our frontal lobe is only processing about 2,500 or so, from what I understand. Um, so when we actively lodge something into our frontal lobe, intentionally, intentionally saying, saying this is something I'm going say, to say, hey, out of that 11 million bits, I want you to notice Focus everything. On this. I want you to notice everything that has to do with this. Okay, so we all of us have had this experience. Anytime we buy a car. Or we want a car, okay? Um, suddenly we see that car everywhere. 
everywhere. And it's not because that car suddenly upped in sales and it's on the streets more. It's because we lodged that into our frontal lobe and now we're noticing it. It was always there, right? And so I think part of the neurological reason why the law of attraction works is because we are, when you, when you set an intent, especially when you write down a goal, I think I'm a big believer in writing it down. You set an intent, you write down a goal, you are literally lodging into your frontal lobe uh, an intent to say anything that happens in that 11 million bits per second that has anything to do with this or accomplishing this, I want to notice, mm. you know? And so, so it starts, to, so we start to notice things and, it's, and it seems like things are just happening magically, but what's really happening is we're noticing things that we're, we're noticing opportunities, we're noticing conversations, we're noticing people that we have Serendipity. Yeah, ser yeah. Serendipity is actually explained because we're, so I think there's, that admittedly is maybe a, a, a small facet of the neurological reason why I think it works. Uh, but I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in it, especially by, about setting intent, writing down goals, and, and moving forward. Was there anything that happened while you were a Navy SEAL that you used a lot of attraction for that happened? I mean, even training. You know, I remember just in training, I was, I was constantly saying to myself, hey, I'm supposed to be here. I, I see myself as a Navy SEAL. I see myself as this. This is what I'm supposed to be. You mm. know, I, I go to the extent of saying I am a Navy SEAL, I'd say it to myself. You know, but... Um, internally. Internally, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think that's, yeah, so, yeah, I... I used it constantly, you know. What's the greatest mantra you used when you were under the most stress or fear or uncertainty or, or sketchy situations that a civilian could use today when they're facing stress? What's the mantra you said to yourself? What can I control? What is it can I control right now? Because you're taking control. You're, ta you're taking yourself out of, uh, out of um, an uncontrollable, a seemingly uncontrollable situation and you're grasping the steering wheel and you're grasping the, you're putting your foot on the brake or the accelerator, and you're saying, I have control over this, at least this small part. That's yeah. right. That's my, that is my, if there's, if there's something I do the most, and now probably unconsciously, is I'm always saying, mm -hmm. what kind of control right now? If, if, especially if the situation begins to deteriorate, you know, right. uh, that's what I do. Did they teach you guys about mantras or <laughs> self-talk no. or no. Uh, focusing on the next step as opposed to the end result? No, not, nothing implicit, uh, or excuse me, nothing explicit. It was probably mm -hmm. implicit in just the, but this is where, this is where challenge and strife, this is where these environments, uh, you know, especially physical ones can teach us so much about ourselves, you know. Um, and most of us can can think of a situation in our lives where we can say to ourselves, you know what, I uh, that was horrible. I'd never want to relive that. Okay, but but I'm glad it happened. Isn't that interesting? Because this is what I learned. This is what I met. This is what I, this that is what I is, became. This is what I became. You know, and and so so just take those. So I would I would offer take those experiences and start start deconstructing them. Do some autopsy on mm -hmm. that because there's lessons in there. There are things that you did probably unconsciously that walked you through that, that you can take and you can extrapolate and say, hey, I can do the same thing next time or now, you know, uh, because I've done it before, I can do it again, you know. Right. Yeah. And going through adversity builds confidence and getting out the other side and being alive and thriving builds confidence. And, and it's growth. I mean, the, the key, that's the key yeah. to growth. I mean, this is what we, we, and I, we all know this in the gym, right? You go in, you lift weights, you tear muscles. Yeah. You are tearing you the muscles. Your muscles. You rip your muscles <laughs> apart. Okay, that's what you're doing. And then you rest, and the muscles grow, and they become smaller. So, so you cannot grow muscle unless you rip them first. Um, this is this is the this unless is, you apply pressure. Yeah, yeah. So so that is growth. You know, mm. uh, and that's why that's why it's important. I think just in in anybody's pathway or their evolution to continually test themselves. And I'm not. I mean, some people are like, hey, I'm fine where I am. I I respect that. In fact, I. 
in, in some cases, I'm envious of it. <laughs> you know, I, I can't, it's hard for me to say that because I'm always like, okay, I, I, I always say to myself, I'm, I'm someone who's always extraordinarily grateful, but never satisfied. Because I think you can be both. You know, I'm so grateful for where I am, everything I've done. But I'm always kind of saying, okay, what's next? You know, what's next? Um, there are some people who are like, hey, I'm good with where I am. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But, uh, but, you know, but active growth for me has been to actively walk to my edges and then, uh, and then look at the next one. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this. One of the attributes is cunning, and you talk about the princess and the dragon. I was curious, what does that actually mean to be cunning, and what is this story about the princess and the dragon? Yeah, I, uh, I, I relate it to the Navy SEALs in terms of one of the, one of the, one of the most predominant traits in Navy SEALs are, are, is the cunning. So cunning is the ability to really think outside the box, if I were to put it very simply, is to, is to understand that in any problem, so any, any problem has two conditions or two elements, right? Element one is that it has a, there's a solution. There's some sort of outcome that needs to happen. The other element is that it has variables or conditions that, that in some ways outline the problem. Because if you have one without the other, you don't have a problem, right? If, you, if you're given a, uh, if you're given a, um, a group, a, a, a set of materials of, of clay molding materials and say, hey, um, you know, uh, build something, you know, right. then, okay, that's good. If I say, okay, um, make a bust of Beethoven, but I didn't give you no materials. So okay, I'm just going to make a bust. If I give you a bunch of materials, I give you like scissors and noodles and things like that. It's like, now make a bust of Beethoven. Now you have a problem. Okay. Cause you have, mm-hmm. you have an outcome that you have to achieve and you have a, a set of variables. Okay? Right. Cunning is the ability to look beyond those variables mm. and, and shake off what's called functional fixedness. Um, and this, this is a, it's this idea that when you see something, you immediately begin to imply, uh, to imply biases and imply rules that are surrounding this. So, so one of the one of the examples I use is the nine dot problem. I know you have heard this, but nine dots in a grid, and this was like the whole think outside the box in the '80s, right? Draw a line, draw four lines that con- that that um, that connect without ever leaving the page. In that, you know, with that, that has to hit every dot, right? And most people couldn't do it until they realized that they had to go outside the box to do it, right? Mm. Think outside the box. Um, so cunning is the ability to do that. Um, the reason why I talk about the, the Princess of the Dragon is I say, hey, listen, the way I describe this in the SEAL teams is this. If we were to think about a med- medieval uh, uh, kingdom, you know, and the princess, there's a princess in a tower guarded by a dragon. And the king who wants to save the princess has sent, you know, his best knights to go slay the dragons to save this princess. And every night, night after night, has been, slay- has been burned to death by this dragon, right? Drop a special operator in there, whether it be a SEAL or a Green Beret or whatever. And the first question they say is, what's the mission? So they save the princess. And they say, well, who gives a crap about the dragon? Right? I'm going to find a way to get to the princess without going through the dragon. Don't gonna, slay the dragon. I don't need to slay the dragon. I need to save the princess. Right? So, so the functional fixedness is, I need to slay the dragon to save the princess. Uh, but, what, but what Cunning says is, what's the mission? Save yeah. the princess. I don't need to. I don't just I, get in the tower and bring it down. Yeah. This is a Shrek, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so that's why I call it the princess and the the princess of the dragon yeah. chapter. So it's thinking outside of the uh, the functional elements that are available for you. Yeah. Thinking outside of that, it's yeah. interesting. What's the uh, what's the thing you feel like you need the most work on to improve to get to the next level with all your years of training? Self discipline. Yeah, I'm constantly working on my self discipline. And there's so. a difference between discipline and self discipline. Yeah. So self-discipline again is is not drinking beer at night. Is <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. picking up the candy bar. It's not, it's not eating ice cream. It's, it's internal control. I, you know, again, I'm um, hmm. I 
I have, you know, most of us, most most human beings can say we don't like to be told what to do. Okay, mm. so most of us are guilty of not being, not liking to be to, to be told what to do. Some of us are extreme about not not being. Like, Tell me what to do. I'm going to do the opposite. Yeah, and some of us don't even like to be told by ourselves what to do. Right? You know, that's kind of we're rebel against ourselves. <laughs> rebel against ourselves. So I think, I think self discipline is something I'll um, I'll continue to work on. Uh, and empathy. I think we. I think we're. I think especially in today's world. Empathy is something we all could do well mm. with uh, trying to trying to gain more, develop more of. With uh, the time this comes out, 2020 will be behind us. What do you think could be a game plan for someone for moving forward in their life on how to gain control of what they can control on how to set <laughs> goals that are manageable yeah. if they still feel overwhelmed and stressed? What would a Navy SEAL do after 2020 to have a more joyful, happy, fulfilled life. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting how, how uh, things happen and they, they become congruent with the time frame. You know, I wrote this book because I was interested in, in helping people understand their own engines. Uh, because I was, because like you, I'm also fascinated with, with the, you know, how to, how to better ourselves and all these tools and techniques and people are out there saying, hey, do this, do that. And, but what I realized is much like any car engine, if you start slapping stuff onto a car engine and you don't understand the actual engine, you're going to break something or blow something up, right? So the key to self-improvement is to first know thyself. Mm -hmm. And so the, so the reason why I wanted to write this book was because it, the reader will help to understand themselves. What are they showing up to the game with in terms of their own palette of attributes and where they stand? Um, couple things. So, so, so reading the book will help someone learn that and then they can start to look at 2020 and recognize that 2020 taught them a lot about their own attributes because we were all thrown into challenge, stress, and uncertainty. So with the context of the stuff you read in the book, you'll be able to look back in 2020 and say, oh, you know what? I can see, actually, I'm more adaptable than I thought. Mm -hmm. I'm less resilient than I actually want to be. I need to develop that. You know? right. uh, I need to be a little bit more disciplined or I need to be a little bit more open-minded. Or you know, maybe because of the political landscape, I need to be more empathetic. You know, who knows? Um, so, so Someone should be able to read the book and start to understand more about these internal hidden drivers. Uh, look back at 2020 and index that. And then on the website, you put we have a, a free assessment tool, so mm -hmm. you can actually take an assessment for 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 grit, for mental acuity, and for drive. That's good. And you can see where you stand on these attributes. Now, now it's going to be a snapshot as to where you stand because it's really it's, it's really as compared to a, a survey set of about a thousand people we got around the globe with data we got from. So it's kind of like, okay, as compared to these thousand people, here's where I stand on adaptability. Right. So it's really, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a snapshot, and then you have to kind of say to yourself, in looking at the snapshot and looking at how I've dealt with 2020 and how I've dealt with other uh, environments, where do I think I stand? And then mm -hmm. I'm also offering on the website, there'll be some workbooks that you can get to help uh, guide you in developing any attribute you want to develop. You can mm -hmm. develop any attribute you want. It just has to be self-directed has to be self-motivated. You can't learn it like you learn a skill. Mm. Um, it ha you know, because I can't, if, you wanna, if you're naturally impatient, I can't sit down and teach you a class on patience. It doesn't work that way. I can teach you typing or shooting, which is a skill. Um, I can't teach you patience. So you can't teach an attribute that way. Um, you can develop an attribute, it has to be self-directed. So, mm. so I've, I've, I've put together some guides on how to develop your, develop each attribute mm. that you want to. So, where, where do we go for the website? Uh, theattributes.com, pretty simple. Theattributes.com, and yeah. you're, 
I only found you on LinkedIn. Is that true? Do you have social no, media? No, I have LinkedIn. I have Instagram. Okay. I have Facebook. And the attribute says Facebook as well. So if you go to theattributes.com, all my stuff is up there. But I am on LinkedIn and um, Instagram as well. What's your Instagram? Uh, Rich Divini. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. There you go. Yeah. Um, this is powerful, man. Theattributes.com and the book. Make sure you guys check this out. 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. I like the idea of optimal performance as opposed to peak performance. I think it's good to be able to get to peak performance in moments but it's hard to sustain that, obviously. So getting an optimal performance would be great. I'm a big fan of assessments and reflecting back, uh, you know, as an athlete, we watch game films. So mm-hmm. we would always get scored and assess how we did on every play. Yeah. Not, and the whole game, what was our performance? Right. What was the skill you need to develop to get a higher score in the next game? Yeah. So for me, it's important to look at and assess your life or assess the year of what worked, what didn't work, so you know where you want to move into. So I think it's really powerful. Go to theattributes.com for the assessment and the book. The book is out um, January 26th. January 26th. Yeah. So uh, you can either pre-order this, this is out before then, or get it right now. Uh, a couple of final questions for you. This is called the three truths. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to imagine hypothetically it's your last day on earth. Okay. And you've accomplished every dream you have set out. Every mission, you've written more books, you've live the exact life that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, you have to take all of your work with you. So your content, this interview, any interview you've done, any book, video, it, the assessments, they all go with you to the next yeah. place, wherever that is. Yeah. But you get to leave behind three things you know to be true, three lessons you would share with the world that if anyone wanted to understand who you are and the lessons that you would leave them, this is what they would have and that's it. Yeah. What would you say are, are those lessons or those three truths? Well, we'll see. Let me let me tell you what I tell. Let me tell you what I probably tell my kids. Yes. Um, the first is, you are entitled to nothing. Um, and I say that in a in a kind way. It's really more of a of a of a mindset versus a judgment. Um, it's it's this idea that uh, if you approach the world with the sense of doing the work to earn, you know, versus you show up and you're entitled to something, you are going to understand and be willing to do the hard stuff you know you're not going to worry about getting your hands and feet muddy and dirty you know you're going to be okay you're going to be humble enough to go and do the do the hard stuff right so so i think that's number one um number two is uh that uh knowledge is not power knowledge is potential power Uh, because we can all have we all know exactly what has to be done and what we need to do to do something but unless we act Nothing happens, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, you and I can, you and I can have the perfect plan to, you know, bench three hundred pounds at the end of the, you know, you know three month training cycle right. or whatever, and take take us three months to bench whatever. Um, if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. So, so knowledge, just knowledge on its own, is not power. You have to, you have to apply. You know, if you mm-hmm. apply it. Um, and the third one is uh, is the idea that um, first of all, set goals. Um, but but divorce yourself from the pathway <laughs> that you need to take to reach it, yeah. um, Ooh. because uh, because you don't know what the best pathway is. You have to start you have to start moving you have to start moving towards that goal, and then just figure it as we go. So so rock climbers could teach us a lot in this venue because the rock climber that's cl- uh, that's climbing a, a face for the very first time certainly the goal is the is the is the top right. Um, but that no rock climber is going to say I'm, 
I'm going there, 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 the whole way up. That rock climber is going to start climbing, and that rock climber is going to climb and find the find the knot hole that he or she likes and move to that one. Sometimes, and this is tricky, okay. Sometimes the best knot hole is going to be down, mm. right? So sometimes you have to move away from your goal to actually get closer to it. Wow. To find the right knot hole, right? So 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 oftentimes people get I think tied up and discouraged because the 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 pathway that they thought would lead them to the goal that they've written down or the one they're trying to achieve, it's not working out for them. It's like, mm. this is not, well, sometimes it doesn't. You know, if you, if you stay steadfast, you'll get there and just yeah. understand that the pathway, don't dictate the pathway, dictate the outcome. Those are good. I like those a lot. Um, again, the attributes, make sure you guys get this. I want to acknowledge you, Rich, for, for constantly showing up after your service uh, for the country, you're constantly showing up in service to share lessons uh, for us to understand them in a way that works for us so that we can have practical tools and ideas to really move forward in our lives. So I really acknowledge you for using your service of 20 plus years to then say, how can I serve in a different way for human beings on self-improvement and optimal performance? So I, I appreciate and acknowledge your, your efforts, your work, and your constant desire to grow and learn to share this with all of us. And uh, I think this book is gonna be helpful for a lot of people. Um, final question for you is what's your definition of greatness? Yes, what my definition of greatness? My definition of greatness is the ability to recognize the power of two words that I think actually are the most powerful words in the human language. And that those two words are I am. Mm -hmm. um, because whatever we put after those two words is what we define ourselves as and the pathway we begin to move towards both consciously and unconsciously. And I think uh, we have to be very, very careful about what we put after those two words because there's a power. So so greatness is to be able to understand that and use it. Mm. My man, Rich, thank you, sir. Appreciate Thanks for it. having me. My friend, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you found it powerful and inspiring, make sure to share this with a friend, lewishouse.com slash 1058. You can text people that link. You can post it on social media or just copy and paste the link where you're listening to this podcast right now. Share it with a friend. Post it on your Instagram stories, on LinkedIn, Twitter, all those places online. If this is your first time here, please click the subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts right now and leave us a rating and review. Every time a new person subscribes or people leave ratings and reviews, it allows us to reach more people in that ecosystem. So each time you do that, you're actually helping change more lives. So let's impact more people together and spread the message of greatness to the world. If you want inspirational messages from me every single week, then make sure to text the word podcast right now to my number, 614-350-3960, so you can get up-to-date messages to keep you inspired and motivated throughout the week. Also, if you are a successful entrepreneur already and you want a coach to take you to the next level, you want a mastermind group, you want a year-long experience to support you on getting clear and staying on track on your vision and your goals, check out lewishouse.com slash mycoach right now. Check out the page and see if you think you're the right fit for this program. Again, check it out at lewishouse.com slash mycoach to see if you're the right fit and apply to greatness coaching. And I want to leave you with a quote from Ernest Hemingway, who said, when people talk, listen completely. Most people never listen. And I want to remind you, if no one's told you lately, you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. I'm so grateful for you. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.
At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada yada. And bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and not a yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch to Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.